1610, the District of North Dakota, United States versus Renee Johnson. All right. Mr. Rognaby, please proceed. Thank you, Your Honors. May it please the court, counsel. My name is Monty Rognaby, and I represent the defendant, Renee Johnson. And Ms. Johnson appeals from her conviction, and the basis of the appeal is a violation of the Speedy Trial Act and also her rights under the Sixth Amendment. Now, by way of background, there were four continuances in this matter, and these continuances all contributed to the violations that we're claiming. But without waiving all of our arguments for the purposes of today's appeal, I want to focus on the fourth and final continuance. So the Speedy Trial Act computations begin in this case on September 15, 2017, when Ms. Johnson made her first appearance. The matter was set for a three-day jury trial. Everybody agrees that 39 days passed under the Act before there was any triggering event which might toll the counting of days. And that triggering event was a motion on October 24 for discovery made by Ms. Johnson's counsel. Subsequently, there were three orders for a continuance under 3161H7A, Ends of Justice. And we have some arguments concerning some of those continuances. But the third continuance under the Ends of Justice was to reschedule the trial from three days to ten days. Due to some discovery issues, initially they thought three days would be sufficient. Ultimately, after they got into all the documents, they realized they were going to need ten days. So if you look at docket number 40, after the court's third order to reschedule, the court scheduled this matter for a ten-day jury trial starting on August 6, 2018. So for the purposes of my argument, there were 39 days under the Speedy Trial Act. There was a triggering event. And taking the facts... Excuse me, counsel. That order for a ten-day trial, that was at the joint request of the parties? Is that right? Your Honor, I don't think so. There is no record of that proceeding. Mr. Noblin, who represented Ms. Johnson throughout the proceeding, his position, as expressed in the briefs, was that she had not requested or joined in any request for a continuance. But for purposes of this fourth and final continuance, the rationale for the third is not, I believe, relevant. Taking the facts in the best way possible for the government, there were 39 days, there was a triggering event, and then there was a trial to begin on August 6. Subsequently, after that trial, that ten-day trial was scheduled, Judge Hovland, sua sponte, issued a fourth order in which he rescheduled the trial for beyond the time allowed under the Speedy Trial Act. So the question that is before this court is, was... Obviously, the court had the discretion to reschedule the trial. The question is whether or not the time between August 6, 2018, and the start of the trial in October, whether that time should be excluded for computing the Speedy Trial 70 days. 
I think it's undisputed that if that fourth order for a continuance, if the time after August 6th is not excluded, then there has been a violation of the Speedy Trial Act. And under the law, then the, this court would have to reverse and either send it back with a direction for the trial judge to determine whether the dismissal is with prejudice or without prejudice, or exercise discretion and send it back with direction to dismiss with prejudice. So the question really is, is why, what did Judge Hovland say on the record concerning the fourth continuance? Um, in the judge's order, the judge indicates that, quote, scheduling conflicts have arisen involving other obligations. And as part of the subsequent order on Ms. Johnson's motion to dismiss, the, the Judge Hovland again indicated there were scheduling conflicts. And this is what the, the next line is what the government hangs its hat on, which is based on request for extended trial. So this really is, Your Honors, is a pretext. Um, the court in the third order rescheduled the trial for 10 days. Then as that date became, it got closer and closer, the court rescheduled the case again. And the only rationale besides general congestion is a reference back to what justified the third contingency was the change from three days of trial to four days of trial. Now, the case law in this area um, suggests and, and, and holds that the, the, the reasons given for uh, a speedy trial continuance need to be the actual reasons. And if the court looks at Judge Hovland's uh, on-the-record comments uh, at the uh, trial, Judge Hovland is very candid. He tells the parties that when that 10-day trial date got closer, he had several other matters that were scheduled that he could not find another judge to take on this matter and that he made a decision to try a case that had been pending longer than trying this case. And this is the exact general congestion that the Speedy Trial Act uh, precludes uh, from being an exclusion of the 70-day time period. Now, counsel, wasn't it the judge's opinion, though, that that it was not general congestion? That the that the court make any any uh, finding or or declaration to that effect? Uh, no, Your Honor. The, the Judge Hovland, in his written order, references that there was a judicial emergency is uh, because of the shortage of judicial resources in the district. Um, but there isn't a finding how that is not a general is not general congestion, and that that's kind of the position that the government's taking in this matter is that um, the court, this court, should adopt a separate standard other than general congestion, and that there should be some other standard for congestion caused by a judicial emergency. Of course, as we note in our reply brief, that almost half, I think, of the districts in the country are under a judicial emergency due to resources. The entire purpose of the Speedy Trial Act is to make the court and the government to focus on the resources available and make 
choices as to which cases should go forward and which cases shouldn't. And in this case, uh, at the trial, the government was candid when this issue came up and said, well, we could dismiss this without prejudice and take it up again, um, but we're not going to do that. We're going to proceed and, and see if we get a conviction and then see how this appeal turns out. And that's exactly what the Speedy Trial Act is designed to preclude. Thank you. Thank you. So the other, the other issue uh, has to do with the um, third continuance. Well, the, the second continuance in this matter was because the government requested a continuance because it had alleged in its brief that one of its witnesses were not available. And in responding to that request for a continuance, Judge Hovland, uh, his order does not address the correct subdivision under the statute. So we think that's another grounds of error. And then ultimately, the third continuance was caused uh, because of the government's discovery problems in this matter. And if you look through the brief, Mr. Nodlin, the trial counsel, had all kinds of trouble getting from the government various discovery materials. Uh, at one point, the government represented to Mr. Nodlin in the court that everything had been provided, and then subsequently had to acknowledge that there were boxes of documents that had not been provided. And because of that, that was a cascading effect in, the, in this case, which ultimately resulted in the third continuance, which was done by Judge uh, Hovland sua sponte. So I think that besides that, I think the fourth continuance is the cleanest one under the law, that clearly it was because Judge Hovland uh, could not, as, as he says, try two cases at once because of general congestion in the court system. But I think there are other grounds as well um, in, that are outlined in the brief. There are no other questions. I guess I'll rest on the brief. Uh, and I, I have I have a question. Uh, this Judge Loken regarding yes. uh, regarding the Barker issue. Uh, it's asserted in the briefs that the that Ms. Johnson was not indicted for one thousand two hundred and seventy five days. What's the opening date of that? The opening date for the indictment, yeah. Your Honor. I how, how do you? Well, no. How do you? How do you? Yeah. How do you get the? When did it? When does? When does the period you're referring to start? I believe, Your Honor, it starts on September 7th of 2017. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Judge. No, no, I, think no, I, no. I think I misunderstood your question. I, I told you I'm talking Barker work now. Yes. The assertion, which wraps up in the prejudice, is that there was 1,275 days before she was indicted and I'm trying to find out when that started so I can put it in relation to when Mr. Cook died. Thank you, Your Honor. I believe that that started when she had her first interview with the FBI. But uh, as I'm sitting here today, Your Honor, I'm, I don't have that exact date in front of me. Well, was it before two, Cook died in 2015 or not? I believe it was, Your Honor. Yes. One of the issues that Mr. Nodlin raised is that uh, there was evidence that Mr. Cook had told Ms. Johnson that uh, he had been interviewed by the FBI, and then in Mr. Nodlin's uh, attempts of discovery, there was never any documentation of any interviews of Mr. Cook. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Rodnaby. Thank you. Mr. Mr. DeLone. 
Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court, Chief Judge Smith, Judge Loken, Judge Grunder. My name... Counsel, you just accidentally muted yourself, I think. Sorry, Your Honor. I'm an assistant United States attorney here in North Dakota, and I was the trial attorney for this particular matter, and I was also the one to initiate the investigation with my agents and indict the matter. I think in this particular case, listening to the arguments of Mr. Rogenby, ultimately everything kind of steers, as far as the Speedy Trial Act violation that's being claimed, to that fourth continuance. There's four continuances. Two were by written motion of the United States. Then there was the first sua sponte from the judge, which in our brief we argue that the request from the courts were 10 days in April of 2018. Essentially it was a motion to the court to provide additional days that the court could not provide without looking farther down the court's calendar. So that continuance was appropriate, but it wasn't filed by any motion of the parties. It was sua sponte issued by the court. The fourth one, Judge Hovland specifically indicates in his statements on the record and in his order that it was not due to general court congestion. He had at that particular time, and at that particular time he was almost one full year. Mr. Dorn, before you get into the reasons, I just want to make sure we're in agreement here that at the beginning 39 days ran on the clock. Is that correct? That's correct, Judge Gorder. Would the government agree that if the fourth continuance is not for an allowable purpose, that we do in fact have a Speedy Trial Act violation here? Potentially, yes, Your Honor. If the court finds that that was not for an excludable reason, yes, then there would be a Speedy Trial Act violation. Okay. Now you can go ahead and go into the reasons. Thank you, Your Honor. By that period of time, Judge Hovland had been 11 months into a judicial emergency. He was a sole judge in the district, a district that typically has two Title III judges and one senior judge handling the trial calendars and the docket. Judge Hovland was handling the entire docket for the state or the district that period of time for 11 months, had been going back and forth from the east side of the state to the west side of the state handling matters, inviting in judges from within the Eighth Circuit to come in and assist in particular matters, and had done so with a number of cases. It sounds like an argument for a new standard, as opposing counsel said you were doing. I'm not asking for a new standard, Your Honor. I'm asking for the court to potentially at some point here maybe even look at the fact that... An exception to the general congestion is not an unexcludable reason, principle. Well, that's what I'm asking, though, for a judge. It may be possibly an exception for a judicial and extraordinary... Do you have case support for an exception? No, Your Honor. There is no case support. Or is there a conflict as to whether that's the general, that's the governing principle? That's the governing principle, but nobody has ever defined general congestion, Judge Olkin. That's what we're potentially asking this court to do is say, what is general congestion, and at what point do we surpass general congestion? What dictionary have you gone to to say that what happened here is not general congestion, if you don't, if there's no case law? In my brief, Your Honor, I do pull the general definitions for general and congestion from Merriam-Webster. I put it in my brief. I also went through, and I don't know... This is unrelated to the case at hand. That means it's general. 
Judge, it wouldn't be general congestion in this particular matter because it is extraordinary reasons that the court was under at a particular point in time. Judge Hovland actually indicates on the record that he sought and personally reached out to 10 judges to come and assist for that August 6th time period. He had 15 cases. I think everyone would be sympathetic to Judge Hovland's position there. Obviously, very difficult being the only judge in the district. But doesn't the Speedy Trial Act provide a potential remedy by going to the Judicial Council and getting the Judicial Council to approve a suspension of the time in a circumstance like that? It does, Your Honor. And I know of one circumstance in the Ninth Circuit that a district there did it and sought and received that suspension. I don't know why the District of North Dakota, the judiciary, did not seek that suspension from the Eighth Circuit. I can only assume that the court believed that there would be enough assistance coming in with visiting judges throughout that time period. However, that wasn't the case. In this particular matter, when the August trial date was coming around, the judge reached out, tried to find 10 people. And trying to find somebody to come in for 10 days, potentially, is almost impossible, especially on anything short of probably four or five months' notice. And just trying to manage a caseload where Judge Hovland, in his order, indicates when he looked at the cases scheduled for that particular day. Why didn't the government simply tell Judge Hovland, we can try it in three days if that's all you have available and there's no other judge? Because during the teleconference, Judge Loken, the parties indicated we could not try it. This is unrecorded, so you're speaking what's not on the record? Right. All it is, it's referred to by Judge Hovland in the record. So he talks about the parties requested 10 days. Okay, but don't tell us what you said in the phone conversation if it's not in the record on appeal. Then all I can do is... My question was, why didn't the government tell the court before the fourth continuance, when the fourth continuance issue came up, we're prepared to try the case in three days if that's all the court has available? Judge, because at that point in time when we had the teleconference, I did not believe that we could do it in three days. The trial could not happen within three days. Then you can dismiss it without prejudice, as you apparently acknowledged in the district court. Yes, Your Honor, I could have done that, but the judge had already found 10 days down the road. Of course, he then had to move it further beyond that date. But we could have done that, but then the judge would have had to found 10 days again at some point in time down the road. We're already on that road of discovery was out. There was over 100,000 documents in this particular matter. A terabyte of information was provided to Mr. Nodlin. Witnesses were being tracked and subpoenaed and travel arrangements were being done. It would have been difficult at that time then to ask the court to allow us to dismiss without prejudice and come back and try to find a date with the court before filing a new indictment in this particular matter. It was just judicially more expedient to continue on with the dates that the court was able to find at the time. The judge, the argument in the brief, I do believe that that fourth continuance, there was no issue with that particular matter because the judge was following the district's trial and calendaring process. In that case, the judge looked at the calendar, took the oldest case, took the oldest docket, and then he looked at the calendar and said, okay, I'm going to continue this case. 
took the one that had the, the most uh, prejudice to the defendant, which is a person that had been sitting 177 days in detention, and took that case forward and tried it. Uh, the judge then found the next available 10-day period, which was in October, which we did commence with trial in October and, and, and completed this particular matter. Um, but further on, beyond that, you know, Judge, I'm, you know, I'm asking the court to consider potentially that there has to be something that transcends beyond the, the, the terminology of general congestion. There has to be something that, that allows the court to say, well, this court was under judicial duress to an extent that they could not possibly be held to a standard that uh, that is being applied nationwide. Well, counsel, I could, I could understand a, a, a standard like that if it involves something other than congestion. Uh, if it was the pandemic uh, or something that is uh, perhaps an emergency apart from the fact that there are more cases than time. Uh, uh, and that's what this seems like. It, it just seems like there uh, was just too much going on uh, based on the limitation of judicial resource uh, of, of judges in the, in the area, which is classic congestion. Yeah, I, I, I disagree, you know, respectfully, uh, uh, Chief Judge, that it's classic congestion here because you have one judge handling what typically is two full-time judges and a senior judge. Uh, as Judge Hubland indicated in his his uh, one of his orders or his responses, he was he had 20 to 25 cases on the trial calendar a week at that particular time. Uh, so and you're was saying not this case would be different? You're saying this case would be different if if uh, the district had its full complement of judges, but you were still, una but, the, but the court was still unable to find the time within the statutory limit? I, I don't know if the court would not have been able to find the time. If it had the, the uh, another judge and a, and a uh, senior judge, I'm, I'm fairly certain that you know, one of the other judges would have been assigned to take one of the cases. But if uh, the level of cases in the, in the district was such that you would still run into a problem with this case, uh, how is that different? I mean, it, it's, it, 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 it would, I suppose, be better if they had all their judges, but the problem's the same. Well, just you know, taking in, in this particular circumstance, the judge indicated that he had 12 to 15, I think that's what he indicated, it was 12 to 15 cases that were trialed that particular week. Uh, the majority of them went away with uh, continuances or joint continuances, uh, motions filed by the parties, or they were disposed of by, by plea agreement. It did come down to, essentially, I believe at that time, to two cases. And that other case that went to trial was the oldest one with a person that was in detention. Had that been the case where we had two full-time judges and a senior judge, one of the other judges could Wait a minute. Con Congress only provided two judges. Don't keep talking about a senior judge. They're wonderful when they're available, but they're, they're irrelevant in, in, this, in this debate. Agreed, Judge Loken, but even if you had that other judge and you had down, you got it down to whittle it down to two cases, one of the other, the other judge could have taken one of the cases forward to trial while Judge Hovland handled whichever one he uh, deemed to uh, uh, to be the one that he was going to retain. Uh, let me let me uh, go back to statutory construction. Do you agree that this issue turns on the plain meaning of the two words "general congestion" in 18 U.S.C. 3161 uh, H seven C? 
Yes, Your Honor. Okay. I do. I do, and I believe that you know there has to be a, you know some some sort of a scenario that does allow a, a an appellate court to look at the situation and the scenario and that's say that's not a plain that's not a plain meaning argument. Well, Your Honor, Except, I'm not, exception. If you want an exception, go to Congress. Exactly. We have to follow the plain meaning of this of what Congress has enacted. Exactly, Judge. But you know, the plain meaning of general congestion is just your general run-of-the-mill congestion. This was beyond that. This was extraordinary. This was a court in duress. Uh, there's got to be a scenario where a court in duress has some sort of ability to, uh, uh, or, or some, some ability for the ACER to look at and say, look, this is a different scenario. This is not your run-of-the-mill general congestion. This goes beyond that. This goes beyond what Congress even discussed. And in the legislative comments that I looked at, the, and I referred to in my brief, the legislature did talk about there may be scenarios where a case has to be preceded before another and one gets pushed back and farther back. They don't go on to define general congestion and they continue to use that terminology, but they do suggest that there could be something more than just general congestion that causes a case to be pushed back in time. Um, I'm inviting the court to look at that. And, and, and take what the legislature is, is giving us as an ability to say, look, this is a very rare circumstance. This doesn't happen nationwide. And I understand Mr. Rodney's argument that half the uh, judiciary uh, uh, districts are under uh, uh, a judicial emergency. That's a little bit different when you're in a, you know, in a judicial district where you have 10, 15, 20 Title III judges compared to one where you have two and you lose one. You're down to one for an entire district. That's a whole different animal. That's losing half your your your, your complement of, of, of judicial Title III judges. So there is more extraordinary. Uh, given that Ms. Johnson was sentenced to time served, if we were to find a Speedy Trial Act violation here, does the government have a position as to whether we should uh, remand with directions to dismiss with or without prejudice? Uh, well, Your Honor, I think that would be probably the the, uh, the the manner in which the court would have to proceed is to remand with orders or directions to uh, to for the court to determine whether or not to dismiss with or without prejudice. Uh, at that point in time, the court could then turn around and, and uh, dismiss without prejudice. Um, given that it was a time served, I'm not sure the court would, would probably do that because it's... Well, we can do it. I think the question was whether we should do it. I, I actually think, Judge Loken, that it would be uh, probably cleaner for the, a remand to go back to the district court for the district court to make those particular findings. Uh, one, one thing I want to go on to is, Judge Loken, you asked Mr. Rogney about the, the start date for what the, uh, the defense was talking about in their one, over 1,000 days. I believe that was the target letter date uh, when, when we sent a target letter to uh, Ms. Johnson uh, and her counsel, and that was in February of 2014. Uh, that's not uncommon for a target letter to go out to defendants or, sub or targets uh, at the very beginning of an investigation before the investigation is even remotely complete. If they're identified as a target, there's an opportunity then to offer them the opportunity to cooperate in a particular matter. Uh, in this particular case, um, going through the, the testimony of, uh, of, of Tom Urban, or, uh, Inspector Urban from the trial transcripts, witnesses were being interviewed well into 2016 on this particular matter. Uh, there was four different cases kind of touching on this particular matter. You had the, the, the whole Henriksen uh, murder for hire cases. Uh, you had the, uh, the Krevlin Henriksen fraud themselves. 
you had this particular matter. You had a, a, a gun possession issue. Uh, Mr. DeLong, your, your time's exhausted. Do you, do you have a, a quick point you're trying to make? Uh, no, Your Honor. I was just you know, trying to indicate that you know, this would have went beyond even when Mr. G, Mr. Cook had, had passed away before there would have been an indictment regardless of, of the situation. She was just uh, targeted early on because she was identified. I would ask the court to uh, affirm the court's uh, district court's decision or uh, motion denying the uh, order to um, uh, dismiss uh, or the motion to dismiss this particular matter and uh, rest on the briefs. All right. Thank you. Mr. Rogneby, do you have any rebuttal? You need to unmute your mic. Thank you, Your Honor. I apologize. Um, Judge Loken, I agree with Mr. DeLorem that the start time that we referenced in the brief was the target letter on February 28, 2014. Um, it appears now that the government has conceded that this case turns on whether or not this is general congestion. And this, there's no true emergency here, right? There is case law for true emergency exigent circumstances, but that this isn't an exigent circumstance. This is a situation where the government is overcharging or charging more uh, criminal matters than that the court system uh, can accommodate. And in all of the cases that we cite in the brief, uh, based on general congestion is the exact same specific issue, which is the trial judge can't try two cases at once. So, I mean, this is not an unusual situation and it's based 100% on judicial resources. And th what the government is failing to understand is that the government, the U.S. Attorney's Office, they have an obligation to follow the act as well, right? This isn't just the uh, judiciary that has this responsibility, the, the U.S. Attorney's Office has this responsibility, and part of what the act is designed to do is to focus the U.S. Attorney's attention to those matters which are most important. And here, that was not done, and that was one of the reasons why there was the delay. Um, the concern, if the court looks at uh, Justice Scalia's concurring opinion in U.S. v. Taylor, I mean, he indicates that the, the the statute is not ambiguous. There's no, no need to go to legislative history that the words in the statute mean what they say. And this is, as Judge Loken mentioned, general delay. Um, the problem with trying to create a different standard for ungeneral delay is what's the limiting principle? I, I'm not sure that it, it exists. And at that point, I, I think the court creates a lot of confusion where Congress uh, did not intend uh, for there to be uh, that kind of confusion. Uh, our view is that this matter should be dismissed uh, based on a violation of the Speedy Trial Act, that, that the act has, in fact, been violated. And then the question becomes whether or not it should be dismissed uh, with prejudice or without prejudice. And we believe in this situation it should be dismissed uh, with prejudice. And the support for that is the U.S. v. Clymer case and the U.S the Velasquez case that I cite, um, the standard that the court applies is the seriousness of the offense, the circumstances of the case, and the impact uh, on the administration of the act and the administrative of justice. And clearly... In this counsel, the decision for the dismissal to be with or without prejudice, is that a decision for this court or for the district court in the first instance? I think that generally the case law suggests that it's for the district court, um, but there, and we cite the cases in the brief, 
the case law suggests that there is a role for this court and that a remand of this nature should be, they should be rare. So we think on the facts of this case that this is a case where it should be dismissed with prejudice and that this court should exercise that authority. And that's what we are requesting the court to do. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Rogoby. Thank you also, Mr. DeLorme. We appreciate both counsel's participation and argument this morning and helping us clarify the facts and issues in this case. We will take the case under advisement and render a decision in due course. Thank you.